Hello and welcome back to State of Mind with me, Grace Kingswell. We are steaming through this series of the podcast at quite an alarming rate and I hope you're enjoying all the episodes as much as I am. Just a quick reminder to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast if you do listen as that really helps me get the podcast heard by more people. I have an incredible guest for you today, Robin Puglia. Robin is a nutritional therapist and IFM certified functional medicine practitioner. She specializes in autoimmune disease, gluten reactive disorders, including celiac disease, complex cases and unexplained illness. As well as a busy clinical practice, she provides technical support and education for Regenerous Labs, including Doctors Data, Dutch Labs, BCAA Lyme and Viral Labs and Cyrex. Robin is a well-regarded speaker and lecturer in the UK, presenting on autoimmune disease, gut health, complex biochemistry and clinical case studies. Most recently, Robin started up a functional medicine mentoring program along with Alex Manos and Laura Sterling, which I myself completed and loved. And that's where my girl crush on Robin began. (laughs) I wanted to quiz Robin on some really basic concepts, but get her to go in depth about what's actually happening in our bodies on a cellular level. We speak about blood sugar, sleep, alcohol, coffee, yes, I know, and all the diet dogma. And oh my goodness, you will learn so much from this episode. It's one of my all-time faves. Robin is also the queen of analogies, so don't worry, it's all really easy to follow. So, on with the episode. Woohoo, and we are live. Welcome, Robin, (laughs) to the podcast. Thank you so much, Grace, for inviting me to talk to you today. Um, Now, Robin, before we get into everything, I have to start with the same question I ask all my guests to begin with. What has 2020 taught you? Such a loaded question. 2020 has been a bit of an insane year. (laughs) Um, 2020 for me has been, um, the thing that it's taught me is... Uh, a complete re-evaluation of almost everything in my life, like um, refocusing on what my core values are, what my priorities are. Um, And it's also taught me um, the importance of kind of centering my life around my core values and how Mm -hmm. much better I feel when I do that. So as opposed to what I was doing and what I still do to a certain extent, but have more, more, Um, awareness of now Um, doing things out of habit doing things out of busyness doing things because other people have the expectation or because um, I've I have an obligation Mm. Um, you know rethinking everything (laughs) that's probably the biggest thing also um, how much happier I am when my life is simple actually that's probably the one big thing you wanted me to just say one thing one big thing is how much happier I am my life is really simple yeah I think so many people have probably realized that haven't they Mm, just like strip off all the unnecessary stress that we deal with on a daily basis and just yeah don't go outside (laughs) (laughs) well do go outside but but in your garden with bare feet and look at the sun exactly not directly at the sun so Robin tell us a little bit about you and what you do and where do you come from Oh, where do you want me to start? So I'm a nutritional therapist and I'm a functional medicine practitioner. I work with complex cases and autoimmune disease predominantly. Um, I'm also a mum. I have three little girls. I am an Australian. I'm a displaced Australian living in the UK for 
16 years, I think now. Wow, long and time. I, long time, yeah. So I came over here when I was 24 and I bought a one-way ticket and with this little mantra of I'm not going to make any assumptions, I'm not going to make any plans, I'm just going to see where this takes me. And with the assumption that it would take me somewhere like China or Russia or hmm. Italy or the States that, you know, that this would be a stop on my way to somewhere else. And then 16 years later, I'm still here. It's literally <laughs> the longest I've ever lived in one spot. Were you already a nutritional therapist when you arrived in the UK? No, I was working in medical aesthetics then. So I came over here, I got offered a job um, managing a clinic in Kensington and within Oh, within the first year of being here, I um, started researching. Um, I started researching ingredients actually, mm. and I was looking at cosmetic chemistry, really specifically looking at how retinoids interact with the skin and how they work, and how vitamin C interacts with the skin. And I found one article on um, vitamin C's role in uh, collagen production, and it was written by. <laughs> Um, Patrick Holford and so then I bought his book the optimum nutrition bible and then by the time I finished his book I had enrolled in ION and and that's how that happened I went from carrying this massive book around with me on the bus uh, on my way to and from work <coughs> to studying and just completely fell in love with the industry and but thought at that time I thought that I was going into it in order to further my career in this not in aesthetics exactly but in skin health you know mm -hmm. that I had I mean at the age of 24 I had 14 years experience almost no that can't be right that cannot be right I didn't start when I was 10 um eight years experience and you know it was a big love and a big passion of mine and it was a big part of my identity so I just thought this would be a way of taking that further and by the time I'd finished four years later um, it was the immune system and brain health and you know all of this this entire other world had opened up to me mm. and, um, just really to ask you a totally shameless aesthetic related question yeah. um, given your knowledge on skincare mm -hmm. uh, you know these days we are sold so much um, on retinoids and vitamin C serums at like crazy prices. Should we be putting that stuff on our skin? <laughs> um, so what you put on your face can never replace what you put in your mouth, for sure. And, um, you know, my ethos of keeping it simple extends definitely to skincare. Mm. Um, that I, I, I use retinol and I use, you know, vitamin C and L-ascorbic acid on my own skin, but I don't do it every day. Um, and I do it as part of a very gentle skincare routine. I think it's a little bit like, um, they help, they are helpful, but you don't want to overstimulate either. You can't force your body to do things that it doesn't have the capacity to do. And that also extends to, um, retinol, which mm. is essentially what you're trying to do with, you know, applying retinol on the surface of your skin. You're trying to force your skin to make new skin cells. And if you don't have the capacity to do that well, that's not helpful. Mm. Uh, vitamin C is a bit different because it is an antioxidant and your skin is um, exposed to a ton of oxidative stress pollution um you know exercise anything that we do your your skin is the front line for that so actually vitamin c you can use um but i don't think that it needs to be 185 pounds no. per bottle of serum you know yeah. <laughs> i find that exorbitant and um really just part of the whole marketing and hype yeah okay good to know mm. um so robin what i would love to do today is 
to ask you questions about relatively simple quote unquote topics mm-hmm. within wellness and health and nutrition but get kind of the the you know the core understanding behind why we know those to be you know beneficial for our health mm-hmm. um the first thing i'd love to touch on is blood sugar And, you know, why actually is it so important that we maintain, um, you know, a steady blood sugar and we don't go through these cycles of crazy highs and crazy lows? Okay, well, the the most simple answer to that is because blood sugar is how we stay alive. Right. So um, your heart and your brain both require a steady supply of glucose in order to function. And when you have instability in that steady supply, your body takes it very, very seriously. So sugar glucose in the blood is sticky, you know, and when you have elevations of glucose um, that are happening either to an extreme level, they're going very high or it's happening um, regularly over a period of time, your body takes that very seriously because it has the ability to damage proteins and to damage structures. So it is like creme brulee and you can make creme brulee um, with glucose around your inside of your blood vessels or around your nerves. And that affects the ability of your heart to function. It, it affects um, everything. So you can go blind, you can develop leg ulcers, you know, on the extreme end of that spectrum. So your, your body takes that very seriously because it is very corrosive and damaging. Mm. On the other side of that, so that's high blood sugar. Low, low blood sugar, when you're having hypo episodes, um, you, you don't have the capacity to continue to fuel your heart, which is keeping you alive, or your brain, which is also to an extent keeping you alive. And I heard somebody say once that you can tell how seriously the body is taking something by how many hormones are responding. Mm -hmm. So when your blood glucose is elevated, you have one hormone that responds to that, which is insulin. But when your blood sugar gets low, you have four hormones that respond to that. You've got your stress hormones, you've got glucagon, and you've got human growth hormone. Um, And so we know actually that hypoglycemic episodes are really detrimental and your body has a big response to that. So when you're dipping low and low is relative. Um, So we think about blood glucose as being kind of this, there's a set point that you shouldn't dip below and a set point that you shouldn't really be climbing above. But like everything in nutrition, it is actually personal. So for some people, they get hypo um, hypoglycemic symptoms at five. And then for some people, it's at 3.7. So it is relative depending on what your biological needs are. And that's, I mean, that's it really. It's, it's, it's a very simple, fundamental, um, it's almost so simple that a lot of people overlook it, to be honest with you. They don't take it seriously because mm. it is so simple, but it's one of the most important things around health maintenance or health restoration. If you aren't mm. taking that seriously, you almost can't do anything else. It affects sleep. It affects physical performance and activity. It affects your immune system. It affects your mood and your brain function. It affects fertility and ability to have a baby or carry a baby. It affects in some way literally everything that you either do or are trying to achieve Mm. and how does um looking after your blood sugar on a daily basis look like what what is that for the average human like what should they think about on a daily basis with regards to blood sugar so they should think about how frequently and regularly they're eating um and again it will be different from person to person as to what their needs are so the the sort of population 
generalization is we should be able to eat three main meals and not have any symptoms outside of those meals outside of hunger or satiety. Um, the only thing that should change when you eat, the only thing is whether or not you're hungry that before you eat, you're hungry, and after you eat, you're not hungry anymore. So if you're getting any fatigue, dizziness, shakiness, nausea, lightheaded, hangry, grumpy, you know, we all have jokes about I'm um, hangry. Mm. But if you're experiencing hanger, which is grumpiness because you're hungry, then your blood glucose is low to the point where it's, it's seriously affecting your physiological function, and that's not actually a joking matter. Yeah. Um, so for some people, it's three main meals. And for those meals to be balanced, that there is adequate fats, adequate protein, adequate starchy carbohydrate, adequate non-starchy carbohydrate um, involved in that meal, whatever that person's balance is for them. Other people, if they have any kind of metabolic instability, then they might need to eat on the hour every hour while they are working to support that. Um, or it might be that they can't go three hours without eating. You know, we talk about intermittent fasting, which is very, very popular. But, you know, in my professional opinion, fasting is only really good if you're metabolically stable and healthy mm. otherwise you're starving and you're you are upregulating your stress hormones and you're running on adrenaline which feels great for some people but mm. it's not great if you are in a state of inflammation or if you've got something going on mm. yeah i it's probably the first thing i talk about with most patients blood sugar and i like to always come back to breakfast i think breakfast is a really easy um, meal to tackle in terms of helping people to balance their blood sugar first thing you know rather than having a bowl of purely carbohydrates with fruit and syrups and, and dates and everything why not have some eggs at the same time why not have some fats why not have some veggies um, mm. there's a huge misconception I feel around like breakfast having to just consist of breakfast foods or the the foods that we have been told are breakfast foods um, mm. when really it's just a meal so yeah I think it's definitely useful for people to know just how important it is to maintain a healthy blood sugar. Well, I think, you know, what we think about as breakfast has not evolved to be that because of anything to do with nutrition at all. I think mm. it's actually been about time and convenience. You know, when you have to rush out the door um, in the morning, as opposed to getting up and, I mean, if we're going back 200 years, getting up and having a massive meal so that you can go out and plow the field, you mm. know, which is, yeah. um, you have the time to do that. Um, and it's important that you do that because that is how the workday was built. Whereas when you're working on somebody else's schedule, you have to be at the office at X o'clock because that's what time your boss has told you you need to be there. Mm -hmm. Then you are not, you're not basing your decisions on what's best for you um, or even on what you need to fuel you through the day. It's based on rushing out the door um, and using stress, you know, basically you're making decisions then around, around stress hormones, which completely skew decision-making. But, mm. um, you know, a lot of my surfer friends in Australia have, you know, a stake and then go out and surf because they know they're going to need to fuel their body for that physical activity if they're going to be surfing for a few hours. Yeah. Um, and I lived in Japan for a couple of years and, you know, breakfast in Japan is a meal. You have miso soup and seaweed and, you know, savory foods and rice and it's, it's a meal and that's how it should be. It is your first meal of the day, not mm. your first sweet treat of the day. Yeah, totally. Mm. Um, okay. So one of my fave things to talk about sleep, um, mm -hmm. again, something that we all know we should do and mm. something that we're all aware that like, maybe we should get eight hours. Um, 
but again is so often overlooked or put on the back burner what are the intricacies of sleep within the body um what does it affect and how okay so sleep is also one of my very favorite topics i think sleep is fundamental and it's another one that really um gets shoved to the side by western society and the way Mm -hmm. that we've built our the way that we've all built our lives so somehow we've managed to turn sleep from being this kind of sacred thing that we have to do every day to this annoying thing that gets in the way of netflix and working or socializing This annoying thing that our body is insisting that we do that is getting in the way of what we actually would prefer to be doing. Um, So sleep, if you ever think about it, Matthew Walker says this, if you think about sleep, the fact that we are supposed to be spending one third of our lives asleep, um, if that wasn't absolutely fundamentally necessary, it would be a massive design flaw. Mm. Um, and the fact that it is necessary you get to a point where you cannot not sleep anymore tells you again that it's so important for the body so sleep is this period during which time your body works totally differently than it does during your waking hours and it does that because you don't actually your body doesn't have the ability to power all of the functions that it needs to do at the same time so Mm. when you're awake and being awake of course is necessary because we have to walk around we have to procreate we have to you know find food we have to do all of the things that actually keep us alive and we need to have perambulation to do that right we have to walk around mm. and and think and hunt and gather and all of those things so you have to fuel those functions we have to eat you have to fuel digestion mm. Um, and so your body is designed during your waking hours to function in that way your brain works in one way because you're awake and you're thinking and you're speaking and you have to power those parts of of your physiological function you have to eat so you have to power digestion you have to move around so you have to power your musculoskeletal system Um, and so that is what you're spending your energy on Um, and then at a certain point you have to do all of the other functions as well that you don't have the capacity for while you're doing walking around eating sleeping etc etc so you have to switch off those functions and we do that by going to bed and going to sleep and Mm. and then while we're sleeping we have the resources we have the energy we have the physiological capacity to do all of the other things which are as critically important we detox overnight we detox our brains overnight our immune system has completely different activity overnight than it does during the day Mm. Um, the immune cells that we make are more numerous they're also more active you know so you do all of your repair work for example overnight while you're lying down and sleeping you know your brain works completely differently at night which is fascinating um there is a function called glymphatic detox where some of the cells in your brain actually shrink um, and create extra space between the cells so that your brain can take out the trash and proteins and waste products are actually excreted from the brain while you're asleep Mm -hmm. and i think that that in and of itself totally blows my mind yeah um, slightly intended um you know that your um your brain takes out the trash at night while you're asleep and you can't do that if you're awake and you can't do that if you're getting an inadequate amount of sleep. Mm -hmm. 
um, you can't do all of the repair that's necessary. You don't make memories in the same way. You, your body doesn't take out the trash in the same way. And if you have any kind of immune mediated condition, if you have any kind of infection or chronic infection, which is really relevant this year, but even things like colds and flus um, or a viral infection, let's say you're somebody that suffers with cold sores, you know, sleep is the number one antiviral as far as your immune system is concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so yeah. funny because when I put up a story on my Instagram saying, has anyone got questions for this podcast episode? One of the questions was, how do I get, ra- how do I get rid of my recurrent cold sores? <laughs> well, there you go. You've got to sleep, sleep it away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's the, it is the, you know, so sleep, um, sleep also completely changes the way that your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system works during the day while you're awake. So one hour less sleep means that you you're running on adrenaline during the day in a way that you wouldn't with that extra hour of sleep Mm -hmm. and from an immune perspective that you know the waking time as well how much stress hormone you're producing during those waking hours totally affects your immune system Mm -hmm. and just specific to cold sores i'm going to answer that person's question you know the herpes virus family do this thing which i find amazing they have a stretch of their dna um that is a sensor for the host's immune system. But the way that they measure the host's immune system, because we know that cold sores, of course, recur, you know, they have mm-hmm. um, a, a sort of relapsing, remitting life cycle. And we know that when somebody is immune suppressed, then the cold sore will reactivate and you'll, yeah. you'll have a flare of the infection. Um, but the way that they measure the immune system is not with an immune marker. This one stretch of the, of the viral DNA measures cortisol or corticosteroids in the blood. And so they use stress hormones as a proxy marker for immune function. Um, and so the more stressed you are, the less your immune system has defense against the infection. And when mm-hmm. you get to a threshold, that same stretch of DNA that is measuring the stress hormones also reactivate the virus. Wow. So it's that relationship between stress, immune system and viral reactivation. And yeah. the number one thing that you can do for that is make sure that you're getting enough sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Every so, night that that's your habit. Yeah. So what do we say to the people that... Um say oh I'm fine on five hours like I'm great if I get eight hours I feel totally rough and it doesn't work for me you have this a bit you know humans have this ability and in fact capacity for normalizing reduced function so yeah if you feel fine on five hours sleep it's because you have normalized what it feels like to be running on adrenaline mm-hmm. you've normalized how reduced your capacity is you've normalized how much slower you think you've normalized how much slower your physiological reaction time is mm-hmm. you've how much worse you do everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems normal. And then any change away from that set point feels strange and abnormal. And then if you start to get more sleep and you feel worse, it's because you have reduced your amount of stress hormone and you're literally having withdrawal from stress, essentially. Wow. Um, you're going through a process of recovery um, and recovery doesn't feel very good because you actually have to confront um, how bad you really feel. The analogy that I use is um, somebody that has a very old car often will have to rev the engine when they're stopped at a set of traffic lights in order that the engine doesn't fail. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when you're running on stress hormones. So when you reduce the stress hormones by sleeping eight hours instead of five hours, Mm -hmm. what happens is you stop revving the engine and so you conk out at the traffic lights. Wow, yeah, so valid because I think that really applies to a lot of people I've got one friend in my mind in particular who is adamant that if he gets any more than five hours sleep, he can't work as productively and he doesn't have any energy and all this stuff. And you just think, you know, 
uh, one day, if you're running on adre- adrenaline your whole life, you know, what's going to happen to you one day? Like that, yeah. you're just going to, you know, stop. <laughs> the car's yeah. going to stop. <laughs> you're going to burn out. What is yeah. going to happen is don't have the capacity we are not built for running on stress hormones day in day out mm. except that it feels really good while you're doing it yeah. you know all that adrenaline feels great mm. um, until it doesn't anymore so i don't know how old your friend is but there is a finite amount of time that he's going to have the capacity for that but then when he isn't able to do that anymore he's going to blame it on his age mm. well i'm 45 now can't okay. do what i did when i'm 25 but the reality yeah. is if you had been sleeping for eight hours of night up until you were 45 you probably wouldn't notice that much of yeah, a difference. yeah yeah for sure mm-hmm. um okay so the next topic that i have in mind is alcohol mm-hmm. um and again like these i'm just taking super relevant really you know simple ideas <laughs> and things that we all know about um and it's amazing that you're being able to just kind of tell us straight um i just think alcohol is such a relevant one because let's face it lockdown 2020 it's been a it's been a tough time and a lot of people have turned to that 5 p.m quarantini um Mm -hmm. and it's been a bit of a lifeline for a lot of people um i usually come back to the 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 idea that you know alcohol is a liver toxin Mm -hmm. and there's no way of you, you can't just you can't have a different type of alcohol you can't change that fact but again, in our society, we've just completely normalized it. What is your take on that scenario and how does um, alcohol act in our bodies? So we haven't just normalized alcohol. We've kind of fetishized alcohol. You know, we've, we've created this role for alcohol where it's actually up on a pedestal and we feel yeah. like we are missing out on something without alcohol, that we can't connect with our spouse in the same way unless mm. we're doing it over half a bottle of wine at the end of the day, we can't unwind without alcohol. We can't socialize without alcohol because either our, our personality is less sparkly and fun, or we don't connect with people in the same way without alcohol. So we, you know, it's a very, very strange relationship we've developed with this Mm. toxin, as you say, you know, we don't, we do not have the same relationship with heroin or marijuana as a society. Um, When actually they're all drugs and they're all acting to change the way the brain works um, in order to facilitate feeling different in a, in a particular situation. But mm-hmm. we have decided that alcohol is acceptable for some reason, not even just acceptable. I'm not anti-alcohol. I am Australian after all, but um, you know, it's, it's been something that I have come up against again and again and again, how difficult it is for people to detach themselves away from the relationship that they've developed with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So alcohol is an interesting one because there is a <clears throat> there is a spectrum um, on which we have the ability to process alcohol, and there's a few different things that go into that. So some of that is purely physiological. It's how well do we physically process alcohol when we take it in, and um, and then for others there is also the psycho-emotional and addictive, you know, brain chemistry side of the relationship with alcohol. And those two things also have a spectrum. So you've got these two spectrums that layer over the top of each other that determine your overall take on, on alcohol. And then some of that, of course, is nurture, you know, whether or not your parents drank will affect your relationship with alcohol Mm. um, and other things like that as well. But physically, um, some people process alcohol very easily and they can have, you know, a bottle of wine and not be hung over the following day. 
some people can have a glass of wine and be hungover for three days. Mm. And I call this the Kate Moss spectrum. You've probably heard me talk about it yes, before. I love this. <laughs> so she's apparently, and I don't know Kate Moss. So if you're listening to this, Kate, um, I'm not throwing shade at you, I promise. Um, so she's apparently got undergone a bit of a clean living kick now, but during my entire twenties, um, you know, Kate Moss was famous for hard partying and you would see her partying for three days um, and then get up in the morning, have a bloody Mary and, you know, head off to the next function, you know, apparently unaffected by no sleep for three days and, you know, copious amounts of alcohol and whatever else she was throwing at the situation. Um, And I call that, so there are people who are very, very, very good at processing environmental toxins, whose body just has the capacity to take out the trash. It's like a revolving door. Toxins come in, toxins go out, you know, um, and the net effect of that is zero. Mm. And they are the people who are on the rapid end of the Cape Moss spectrum. The other end of the Cape Moss spectrum is people who don't take out the trash very well at all. Mm. And so for whom any kind of toxin, including a single glass of alcohol, has a really big detrimental effect on the body. Um, And there is apparently a 400-fold difference between the fast end of the Cape Moss spectrum and the slow end of the Cape Moss spectrum. So there's a really significant physiological difference. Um, And so that plays a really big role in what alcohol does to the body. If you can process it very well, then the amount of oxidative stress and the amount of inflammation that's created from drinking alcohol is less. But if you're not processing it well, then it can be really overwhelming. So alcohol um, creates inflammation in the stomach. It creates inflammation in the small intestine. It then has to be processed by the liver. So you chew through nutrients um, and you become nutrient depleted just as um, a a function of processing alcohol through the liver first it has to go through a series of enzymes then it has to be attached to a protein or a series of proteins then it has to go into the bile then from the bile it has to come into the gut then it has to be processed by the bacteria in the gut and each of those you know because it's such a it's a multi-step process um there's a lot of moving parts there's a lot of areas that can go wrong each of Mm. those Um, areas needs nutrition to work properly and alcohol depletes you of the nutrition that you need to do the functions Um, if you drink enough alcohol it has a massive inflammatory effect on the brain it affects the blood-brain barrier Um, it's there isn't really any system in the body that it can't have a negative inflammatory effect on it's a toxin at the Mm. end of the day it's Mm -hmm. a toxin you feel great while you're drinking it um but you have to have the ability to process the toxin and recover from the toxin mm-hmm. um, and that's not not necessarily as easy as it sounds so i'm i do realize that i sound a bit like a puritan when i talk about alcohol and that's not really um that's actually not really my take on it i think that alcohol is um acceptable as part of um you know a balanced living nobody should be expected to be a nun or a monk as part of achieving health and alcohol is fun um unless you have an addictive relationship with it in which case that's a that's a different conversation um but if you have an autoimmune disease if you have multiple sclerosis if you have severe depression or severe anxiety or severe insomnia um and you are unable to uncouple yourself from your relationship with alcohol then this is no longer something that is 
healthy or healthful mm. or part of a balanced diet. It is something that you have an unhealthy relationship with and that therefore needs to be examined. And I think sleep is probably coming back to that is quite a good example of um, something that we associate with alcohol where people actually use alcohol to unwind in order that they can get a better night's sleep. Yeah. But alcohol is a sedative and sedation and sleep are not the same thing at all. And in fact, mm. alcohol, even a single glass of alcohol has been shown to stop you from getting the kind of deep sleep that you need for your brain to work properly and that you need to recover and restore. And in fact, people that have alcohol before bed or, uh, you know, as part of unwinding in order to sleep better, mm -hmm. end up waking up multiple times in the night, 15, 30 times. Mm without knowing that they're waking up. The period of waking is so brief that they don't really register that consciously. So we use it to unwind, but in fact it creates a ton more fatigue, which then sets you up for running on stress hormones and having a coffee or, you know, four or five espressos and a bag of yeah. Haribo and, you know, sets you up for completely different decision-making so then you end the day tired and wired. So then you have a glass of wine to unwind. Um, and even if what I'm talking about is an extreme example, you might have a glass of wine to unwind three days a week and you might have a couple of coffees on the following days. And that seems normal um, because, you know, one coffee and one glass of wine is not an extreme consumption of either of those things. But if you're doing that because you're fueling an unhealthy cycle, then neither of those things are actually making you feel better. Mm. The coffee is not making you feel more awake and it's not making you more productive. Um, and the alcohol is not unwinding you and it's not helping you sleep better. Mm. Both of those things are actually directly getting in the way of what you're trying to achieve, which is good sleep and, um, you know, being alert and awake and, and productive during the day. Yeah. I'm just jumping in here to tell you about the sponsor of this episode. We are Samudra. Samudra is a sustainable activewear brand ethically manufactured in London from recycled ocean plastic. When you buy a Samudra piece, you are not only investing into the slow fashion movement, but you're helping marine environments and societies worldwide because Samudra donate 5% of profits to female-focused conservation projects. They've chosen Ocean Swell Organisation, based in Sri Lanka, to be their charity that they donate to after their first year in business. Their pieces are consciously created by women, for women, and they have hand-selected their suppliers to have a female-majority workforce and to match their ethos on sustainability, gender equality and ethics. The founders, Katie and Margot, are childhood friends from school, and they only decided to start their brand in the first lockdown, so Samudra is still super new and fresh and needs all the support it can get. They are so passionate about their new brand and getting the word out there, and I'm thrilled to be able to support them in this. All of the pieces double up as swimwear, and I've worn the sports bra a few times in the ocean, as it's actually just super flattering. They also do organic cotton tees with their three-wave logo embroidered onto the chest, which are really, really lovely. The girls have kindly set up a 10% off code for listeners of this podcast. Just enter STATE OF MIND in capitals at the checkout, and you can also get free shipping at the moment too. Please do and go check out We Are Samudra on Instagram and their website, wearesamudra.com. You touched on coffee. Mm -hmm. I, that, wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't on my list of things to ask you, but actually I think it'd be good to go into it because like alcohol, coffee is something that's just endemic 
to our society. We mm-hmm. cannot function without it. We have such an emotional attachment to that first coffee of the morning. You know, sometimes we go to bed thinking about that first coffee. In a similar sense, you know, it, to alcohol, coffee requires a net input of nutrients from the body to metabolize and excrete and detoxify. Um, but it's, I think it's something that's super confusing for the vast majority of people because we also hear that there's a lot of benefits from drinking coffee. Um, what would you say about that? So what I would say is that all of those things are true all at the same time. You know, for some people, coffee is massively beneficial. It genuinely makes their brains function more sharply. Um, <clears throat> that the caffeine helps with the way that their body works. Coffee is a, um, a really good potent source of antioxidants. The caffeic acid is very, very good for you unless it's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you have, that has to be assessed from person to person, you know, mm. because there are people, again, I don't have a, a Kate Moss version of this, um, but there is that same spectrum where for some people, caffeine and coffee genuinely doesn't have any negative detrimental effect. And there is a ton of benefit to it, that mm. it is antioxidant, that it's helpful for physiological function. Um, and that there is also so much pleasure involved in the consumption of it and the ritual and making a coffee or hearing the coffee or smelling the coffee um, triggers a whole series of um, pleasure hormones and dopamine and endorphins Mm -hmm. and you know and all of that is only good and then there are people for whom they're addicted to caffeine and even if it's only one per day uh, they're drinking coffee in order to feel normal Mm. And I think if you have to do anything to feel normal, possibly outside of exercise, um, then you need to have a look at what that, um, what that is actually doing. Like, why don't you feel normal? You have to Mm -hmm. dig underneath that and understand why don't you feel normal? So caffeine, um, is definitely one of those things where we are tired and wired, right? So we, we stay up at night to watch an extra hour of Netflix and then we have a coffee first thing in the morning and all of those things feel normal to us. Mm. Um, but they are setting us up for this cycle that, um, uh, actually is doing the exact opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Mm. So coffee, um, is definitely one of those where for some people it is genuinely so detrimental and they living on coffee um, because they're so tired, but they're tired because the coffee is um, creating too much adrenaline for their system to handle. And so Mm -hmm. it's really affecting their sympathetic nervous system function and it's really affecting their adrenal function. And it's actually stopping them from absorbing nutrients from food because coffee and tea contains tannins um, and other, you know, phytonutrients that actually uh, prevent you from absorbing nutrients properly. Um, uh, coffee uh, actually stops us from sleeping properly. So coffee sits on the receptors in the brain that um, that mediate our sleep um, sleep signaling. So yeah. um, that's probably I don't want to get too technical and, and zone all of your listeners out, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, if anyone's read Matthew Walker's book, he goes into that and those receptors, mm, doesn't he? And, exactly. And um, yeah, it's a definitely a good, a good read. Mm. Um, 
So it's, it's amazing for, you know, one of the things that I do a lot in clinic is helping people actually get break up with coffee. Um, Mm. and it's amazing. So I do, I, I run a program called the foundations of health, um, where we go through literally the foundations of health, um, food and your relationship with food, stress, sleep, physical activity, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the very first things that I do is assess everybody's individual relationship with food. And we do elimination reintroduction and we do things like eggs and coffee and caffeine and sugar and chocolate um, and all of these things that people normally, you know, that we have normally, we have them because they're normal, you know, two squares of dark chocolate per day is a healthy thing to do. Mm-hmm. One organic coffee with, you know, almond milk is a healthy thing to do. Um, but when you take it away for a month and then you reintroduce it and see what your body does and how your body responds, it's been unbelievable. This mm-hmm. thing that I do with people has been unbelievable. Um, what people have discovered that coffee um, one coffee per day actually does like, um, and a, a lady that wrote to me this week to say, um, she has suffered with neck and jaw pain for years and has seen, you know, dentists and all kinds of alternative health practitioners, chiropractors and, you know, and it was coffee, you know, and oh, it was wow. that elimination reintroduction of coffee that eliminated that pain for her mm. that she had spent all this money and had all this dental work done trying to alleviate it it was coffee that's one example my um, brain or, is going a thousand miles an hour now about dark chocolate i might just don't tell me this robin <laughs> <laughs> but the only way to know the only way to know is to take it away um and then reintroduce it and not just assess what it does to your body but assess your relationship with it because relationship to food (laughs) (laughs) my dependency is that because of the caffeine in the dark chocolate or because of the relationship and the kind of dependency and the emotional contact it can be either it also can be the ingredients in the chocolate itself you know chocolate Mm. contains um phytonutrients um, which can be slightly stimulatory in the, in the case of cacao or chocolate specifically, it does have some caffeine, it does have some comfort association, but mm-hmm. you can also be having immune reactions to that protein as well. Yeah. You, know, you, can, you can be having immune mediated reactions to the protein in the cacao itself. Mm. So there's lots of different ways that it may be helpful <laughs> or less helpful, but you know, there's no harm in assessing your, you know, why are you eating the chocolate? what is the association what is it actually doing for you and is there something else because i'm certainly not saying don't have chocolate god mm. forbid um i genuinely mean that i'm horrified at the thought that somebody might take away from this podcast that i said don't eat chocolate <laughs> but um i think that it's always very helpful and very healthy to understand why something is good for you mm. um, and if, because I'm all about my, genuinely, I'm going to have this tattooed on my body at some point, diversity and variety. So yeah. if you have a need that is being met by the, by the chocolate and that need might be uh, comfort or um, familiarity, or it might be, um, uh, I mean, it can be anything. It might actually just be energy. Um, if you can meet that need in a multitude of ways, if you have more than one tool for meeting that need, then you're meeting that need in a way that is healthier and more abundant for you. And you have more tools. So you're not reliant on just one thing. Mm-hmm. And that means if that one thing has to be taken away for any reason, um, that you're not missing anything because you have all of these other ways to meet that need. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. I was going to ask you what your sort of health philosophy was but I think that's probably it diversity and variety and abundance 
Because these yeah. are words that you say all the time. All the time. About everything. About yeah. everything. I talk about, you know, the microbiome, right? It's having a diverse and abundant and varied microbiome is much more important than having a lot of one good bacteria. Mm-hmm. Having a diverse and varied and abundant diet is much better than eating just a lot of, you know, seven different superfoods. Having... Um, uh, diversity and abundance and variety of any kind of protein, having diversity and abundance and variety of any kind of um, uh, health-promoting activity, having diversity and abundance and variety of any physical movement that you do, you know, not just mm-hmm. doing weight-bearing exercise, not just doing cardio, but mm-hmm. in fact meeting all of your needs and doing stretching and doing mobility exercise and doing strength exercise and doing cardiovascular exercise and, 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 mm-hmm. and. The more you do... Um, the more you're meeting your needs and the the better that is. That's 100% my philosophy. Diversity, it's actually four words, diversity, abundance, variety, and joy. Nice. Mm -hmm. So in in an ideal world, we would all be able to go to the supermarket or wherever we get our food shopping and it be 100% pesticide and fertilizer free and grown locally and all that great stuff. And plastic free. And plastic free. If we are looking to increase the diversity of our diet so say for example you've gone to see a practitioner or you've heard about it or whatever and you think okay i'm going to try and eat more more different types of plant foods and more of a rainbow and you go to the shops but you're also concerned about maybe wanting to buy organic because you're concerned about pesticide contamination on your food but the organic section is really small let's say are you personally concerned about buying you know some say like um radicchio or uh, celeriac you know one of those things that people don't typically buy but would be good to increase that diversity of the diet would you just say get it anyway or mm. would you be more wary about the provenance and the potential pesticide contamination so this is a brilliant question um and i think about this all the time because i mm. feel like as a shopper i think i think i feel like as a shopper i'm constantly being forced to choose between two of my values do i choose plastic free um, and non-organic or do I choose organic and in plastic? Yeah. Um, do I choose diversity and variety, but not organic? Um, and I think it's a complete travesty that we have to make those decisions at all. Mm. Um, and, but of course we do have to make those decisions and we need, we do need to know how to prioritize those. So my order of priority actually goes like this. Um, dirty dozen and clean 15. Um, I choose organic. Uh, if it's something like the UK version, if it's something that is in that dirty dozen, then um, and I have to choose uh, to eat it and have diversity, or um, and it not be organic, then I won't choose it. I, I don't think I've explained that very well, but you see what I mean. Like if it's yeah, not yeah. organic, I won't eat it, even if it means sacrificing diversity mm-hmm. to do that. For everything else, um, then my preference is diversity local plastic free if possible yeah. um and then i wash it very well yeah <laughs> wash it very very well and i use soap when i'm washing it or some kind of a veggie wash usually just a um soap because a lot of pesticides are um uh, fat soluble they're lipophilic so you need soap to break up the residue of the of the pesticide on the food um mm-hmm. just normal soap re- normal soap um my preference is for Dr. Bronner's unscented, like Castile soap unscented. But the irony of that, of course, is that that comes in a plastic bottle, which drives me crazy. So <laughs> Dr. Bronner's... You can Bronner's, it in a bar you, too, can't you? You can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you definitely can. Um, 
Okay, that's really useful, I think, for a lot of people because, um, yeah, also, I also see so much controversy online about the whole dirty dozen thing, people negating that it's real and it makes me really sad because it 100% is and we 100% do need to watch out for chemicals and toxins on our food. Definitely. Um, so avoiding the, those which are worst is, yeah, surely only a good thing. Exactly. Um, okay, Robin, I appreciate I'm taking up a lot of your time and you're a busy lady. Um, so I had a couple of well I had a lot of questions actually on this episode but I picked out a few um that I thought were really interesting there's a lot of people asking about um chronic illnesses like ME and uh CFS and fibromyalgia and long-term COVID sufferers which I feel like we maybe don't have time to go into now um but one that I thought was really interesting and also made me quite sad actually was um someone asking whether meat was healthy and the second part of that question was that they were suffering with just a lot of anxiety about worrying that eating meat was really bad for them now because of the general dialogue that we hear surrounding animal products. Um, what's your take on that? So my answer to all questions is always, it depends. <laughs> so I think I've answered all of your questions with, well, it depends. Um, and this is no different. So again, there's a lot of decision-making around meat. Um, and some of that is going to be due to what, what do you physiologically have the need for and the capacity for, because that is going to be different from person to person. So there are some people, and I do genuinely think that they are in the minority, um, who function physiologically very, very well on a vegan or like low protein diet, mm. let's call that. And this is, it is controversial. And um, unfortunately, we have slightly created religions out of diets and mm -hmm. so people get very emotionally um caught in where they stand or emotionally yeah. attached to where they stand on the diet spectrum um so there are some people who do seem to do very well on the vegan diet for many years there are other people who um do very well for a couple of years on the vegan diet and then they don't have the capacity to continue because their nutritional needs aren't being met um, other people just have a higher requirement for animal protein that they don't have the minerals. Um, they don't get the minerals or they don't get the, um, the B12 very well from other sources that they don't, their body doesn't process minerals from plants as easily as it does from animal protein. Um, and then in each of those categories, there's going to be a spectrum, um, you know, and it depends on physical activity. It depends on where you are in your life cycle, you know, whether or not you are, have had children already, menopausal, postmenopausal, you know, running triathlons versus, um, you know, not getting 30, you know, 30 minute gentle walk per day. Those mm -hmm. two people have very different physiological needs. Um, so there's the, the basic argument around protein in the first place. Do we need it? How much do we need? Is plant protein the same as animal protein? You know, there is a lot of very, um, very strong opinions around there about this mm. and my general advice is don't don't treat diet like religion right don't get stuck in diet dogma you need to always keep your mind open and look at the research and don't ever think that one diet is the right thing mm -hmm. um, diet is incredibly personal from person to person but then the next layer on top of that is the actual meat itself 
Um, you know, how are we treating the meat? Was that cow happy and massaged? Uh, was it, um, or was it a very unhappy cow that lived a very unhappy life and was pumped full of pesticides and pumped full of hormones and pumped full of antibiotics? And, you know, was it eating grass and out in the sun or was it living in a shed its entire life? And, you know, animal welfare makes a tremendous difference to um, how, it, how it impacts the body. And then how is it processed? You know, there is genuinely a difference between salami and grass-fed organic beef. Mm. Or pork might be a better example, you know. Mm. <laughs> like the, you know, processed, highly processed meats are very, very different than good quality, um, well-treated animals. And then diversity, abundance and variety, right? People are only eating beef, lamb, pork, chicken, maybe some turkey. Um, unless you actually go out and look for it, maybe a little bit of fish in there, some cod. Um, whereas actually I think it's much better to be having diversity and variety in the animal proteins that we eat as well. So mm. are you eating buffalo? Are you eating um, uh, elk? Are you eating venison? Are you eating bison? Are you eating um, you know, what other red meats can you source that you could possibly be eating? Are you eating duck and chicken and turkey and guinea fowl and partridge and pheasant and you know we are designed to eat in season we are designed to eat a variety of things depending on what we catch and mm -hmm. you know that is how we have evolved that's how the human body's evolved so i think that um again i personally eat meat um, and I give it to my kids as well. So you also need to bear in mind if you're listening to this that, you know, that is my, um, my opinion and my stance on it. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, meat shouldn't be the main component part of your meal. It shouldn't be a piece of meat on a plate with a couple of bits of broccoli. It mm -hmm. should be like 25% of what you, uh, you know, protein should be 25% of what you eat and that there needs to be diversity and variety within that as well. It's not mm. the main part. Yeah. It is an accompaniment, but it's an important one, I think, for many people. Is it um, Mark Hyman that says it should be a condom meat? Yeah, condom meat, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so daggy, but I love that. Um, okay, amazing. Robin, let's wrap things up there. Um, I just have to ask you the final question I ask all my guests. Um, mm -hmm. What does state of mind mean to you? So state of mind for me um, is, I, um, it's a very good question. I should have researched, my, I mean, I should have <laughs> practiced my answer because uh, I knew that this question was coming. State of mind, I think, is... Um, it is the filter through which you uh, translate your environment into your thought process. Um, mm. And because it's a filter, we have the ability to change the lens and to change the filter depending on what we need. Um, so I think that state of mind generally should be like everything else, quite balanced. Mm. Um, but it is going to be affected by uh, what's going on. You know, our state of mind at the end of 2020 is, you know, going to have been affected by 2020. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so hopefully people understand that they have the ability to control their state of mind, you know, that yeah. there are tools that you can use such as meditation or exercise or perspective mm. um, that have the ability to transform state of mind into something that is uh, either positive or appropriate. Um, yeah. And that if your state of mind is disordered or anxious or, um, you know, uh, frazzled as it might be at the end of this year, that mm. it 
you know, that doesn't necessarily reflect your reality, that it is right. a filter that you're using mm. um, to translate your environment into your internal, into your internal being. What a great answer. The que- you are the queen of analogies and metaphors. <laughs> I'm constantly way. telling stories, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, Robin, thank you so much. This has been invaluable. Ah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for just asking me to talk about all the stuff that I love to talk about anyway <laughs> and pontificate on all of my points of view. You are so welcome. Thank you so much again for tuning in to State of Mind. More information about me and my clinical practice can be found on my website, gracekingswell.com. And don't forget to check out wearesamudra.com for 10% off their sustainable activewear. Robin can be found on Instagram at Robin Puglia and her website is robinpuglia.com. Thank you so much for listening. Speak to you next week. Bye-bye.